Hey guys, it is Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. It is a new year, so how about a new you? That's right, how about some new clothes from Leon Tailoring? Something ready-made, something custom-made, or something tailor-made. No matter what it is that you're looking for, they can put it together for you at Leon Tailoring. Or maybe you have goals to lose some weight and the clothes don't fit as well as they used to. Well, Leon Tailoring can take care of that. Or maybe you gained a couple of pounds over the holiday season. Well, Leon Tailoring, they can take care of that too. Notice the pattern here, Leon Tailoring, they can sort of take care of everything. So swing on by Leon Tailoring, say hi to Larry, Kim, and Judy, and tell them Abdul's Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware and downtown Indianapolis. Okay. Before we get started, I'll just make a quick note. These doors behind us are going to remain closed and locked during the proceedings. The doors just behind you all are open. If you need to get up, use the restroom, go have a conversation, make phone calls, that's the direction you want to head. Um, with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I called or the Indiana Election Commission meeting public session. Today's date, Tuesday, February 27th, 2024 at 10 a.m. Conference room B here at Government Center South. Uh, the following members of the commission are present. Myself, Chairman Paul Okeson, uh, Vice Chair Susanna Wilson-Overholt, Member Karen Celestino-Horseman, and to my right, Member Litney Pyle. I also recognize the Indiana Election Division staff, Co-Director Brad King, Co-Director Amy Nussmeyer, Co-counsels Matthew Cochever and Valerie Warcha to my right. And again, our good friend court reporter Maria Collier from Stuart Richardson Deposition Services is joining us once again. Um, and before we go on, I'd like to remind everyone <clears throat> for purposes of getting the record straight, if you are providing any testimony or uh, interaction with the commission today, uh, please speak clearly, state your name and then spell it for the court record. Uh, with that, we'll move on. Um, and, do you have documentation of the open door law? I request co-directors uh, have given proper notice. Mr. King. Mr. Chairman, members of the commission, on behalf of myself and co-director Nussmeyer, we certify that notice this meeting was given in compliance with the Indiana open door law. Thank you. Um, next, we have approval of our September 22nd, 2023 commission meeting minutes. I recognize the co-directors to present the minutes. Mr. Chairman, on behalf of myself and co-director Nussmeyer, uh, we present to you the September 22nd, 2023 Indiana Election Commission minutes and recommend them to you for your approval. So moved. Thank you. Is there a second? Second. Any discussion? Hearing none on the minutes, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 The ayes have it. The minutes are approved. Do I need to... My binder. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Uh, anyone planning to testify today or provide any information to the commission? Um, I would like you to take administration of the oath by Matthew Cochever. So please stand, Mr. Cochever. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, if you plan on testifying before the Indiana Election Commission, please rise, raise your right hand, and say I do after recitation of the oath. Do you solemnly swear or affirm under the penalties of perjury the testimony you're about to give to the Indiana Election Commission? is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Please say, I do. I do. Thank you, Mr. Kojiever. So we have a pretty uh, heavy schedule today with some campaign candidate challenge hearings that we will get to in a moment. Before we're heading into that, we'll take care of a couple of housekeeping items. Campaign finance matters. The commission will consider approval of campaign finance orders from previous meetings, any ratification of settlement agreements regarding campaign finance violations, I recognize Ms. Taylor and Ms. Thompson from the Election Commission Campaign Finance staff to present these matters. Uh, Mr. Chairman, 
there's like a commission behind the campaign finance tab in your binders. There's a list of committees that are ready to ratify that have agreed to pay the settlement or you can wait in here. Was there a motion to ratify the campaign finance settlements as presented? So moved. Second. Having a motion and a second, is there any discussion on these matters? Any questions? Hearing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. aye the ayes have it. Matters are settled. Thank you. Uh, next, we'll establish the What's that? Adoption. Well, we have adoption of the orders. Yes, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sorry. Thank you, Brad. Orders 2023-422-2023-431 have been prepared from the actions taken up to September 22nd, 2023 meeting, and these orders are ready for adoption. <clears throat> Is there any documentation on this? No. Okay. Is there a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Second. Any discussion? Any questions? All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 The ayes have it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, now we'll move on to candidate challenge hearing procedures. Um, we will now begin consideration of candidate challenge based on the order in which the challenges were filed with the election division subject to consolidating some challenges which present essentially identical issues to the commission. I remind everyone to identify yourself again when you begin speaking and spell your name for the court reporter. Mr. Uh, Chair, before yes. we begin, yes. can we go ahead and get consensus on using the hand stamp for signatures? Valerie, any concern? No. no. Mm -hmm. There's a motion to, to consent. Second. Second. Any discussion? Hearing none, all those in favor? Aye. 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 So we'll do it by consent. Uh, and I will say, um, as I read off these procedures, we intend to keep them. We will run it fairly and efficiently, try and get through the entire uh, list and agenda of, of cases. So please abide by them, if you will. In the past, the commission has followed certain procedures for conducting candidate challenge hearings. And I move that the commission use the following procedures for today. When each candidate challenge is called, the hearing will begin by recognizing election division staff to provide information about documents provided to the commission members, including candidate challenge forms and the notice given to the candidate and the challenger. Unless there is objection, the documents provided to the commission by the election division will be entered into the record of this meeting. After the election division staff completes its presentation, the challenger will be recognized first. The challenger or challenger's authorized representative if written authorization was given for said representative and filed with the election division, may present their case for no more than five minutes, unless the commission votes to allow additional time for the presenter. Commission members may ask questions during a presentation, but the time spent answering these questions will not be counted against the presenter's time. The election division may signal the chair when the presenter's time is up. If the presenter offers additional documents or other physical evidence not previously received, by the division or the commission, the original <clears throat> must be provided to the election division and I would direct you to Valerie Warcha to my right to hand such documents to preserve the record. The candidate or candidate's representative will be recognized 
following the last presentation by a challenger. The candidate may present their case for no more than five minutes as well, unless the commission votes to allow additional time for that presenter. Following presentation by a challenger, the candidate may cross-examine the challenger. Following the presentation by a candidate, the challenger may cross-examine the candidate. The cross-examination in all cases will be limited to two minutes, unless the commission votes to allow additional time. The cross-examination must be limited to the questions regarding the statements made by the presenter during their opening five minutes. Following presentation by a candidate, the challenger may present a rebuttal for no more than two minutes. The commission may dismiss the cause of any challenger who has failed to appear to testify before the commission. If more than one challenge has been filed against an individual candidate, the commission may consolidate the challenges but will provide the same equal, excuse me, same amount of time for each individual challenger and equal time to the candidate. Is there a second to my motion for the commission to adopt these procedures for today's hearings? Second. Any discussion? Any questions? Hearing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 The ayes have it and those are the procedures. Uh, moving right into the agenda then, we have the Bartlett v. Carter challenge 2024-01, the matter of the challenge to Autumn Carter, candidate for Democratic Party nomination for state representative of District 95. After filing the challenge in this matter, the challenger, the Honorable John Bartlett, filed a request to withdraw the challenge. The election division has provided copies of the, the candidate filing challenge form, a copy of notice given in this matter, and a copy of the motion to withdraw in, in your binders. I therefore move that the commission dismiss this cause based on the challenger's withdrawal of the challenge. Is there a second? Second. Having a second, any discussion, any questions? Hearing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 The ayes have it. Motion is adopted and this case is dismissed. The election division will be directed to include the name of Ms. Carter on the certified list of primary candidates sent to county election boards. Next on the agenda in filing order, we have Kester versus Trump challenge 2024-02. Uh, in the matter of the challenge to Donald J. Trump, candidate for the Republican Party nomination for President of the United States. The election division has provided copies of the candidate filing challenge in form with attachments and a copy of notice given in this matter in your binders. I now recognize Mr. Kester, the challenger for presentation, unless... Yes, Mr. Chairman, yes. sorry if I might. I, before we start on this, I just wanted to disclose the fact that um, uh, I believe it's the Trump campaign that is represented by um, the same firm where my husband is employed um, okay. and and he is an owner. Um, but I do not believe that creates is having any impact on my um, judgment. But I guess I presume Mr. Wheeler, no. Mr. Wheeler might disagree. Oh, not at all. Okay. But I left the firm at the end of the year. So I'm now with the firm of Bozeman. Oh, I, oh, I knew that and I forgot. So, well, there's no, there never would have been a conflict. No, <laughs> Mr. Wheeler knows my background. I presume for the record, all has, has been appropriately dealt with. Yes. Um, anything from the co-division before we start on this matter? Um, I don't know how both co-directors want to go if we want to ping back and forth on presenting the, the record. Um, or if we want to handle them based on the, the candidate in which primary they're running in. I forget how we usually do this. It's been two years. Brad, um, Valerie. But um, 
I defer to both co-directors on how they want to. We don't do this on a daily basis, thank you. Mr. Chairman, my recollection is that Mr. Cochever is correct that in terms of staff presentations, depending upon the party affiliation of the candidate involved, the election division for that staff will make an initial presentation of the record. I think that's how we listed it in the proceedings. Sure. Valerie? Do you need me to spell and say my name? I think you're good. Okay. So this one is filed by Benjamin Kester. He is challenging the candidacy of Donald J. Trump for U.S. president. And the claim is the candidate is disqualified from holding public office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And I believe this is Mr. Kester that is here to make his presentation. Before you go on, Mr. Cochever, do you have anything to add to that? Nothing to add to that. Okay. I'll start the five minutes then. Okay. All right. Take that first. State your name and you know the game. Our preliminary objection is a jurisdictional objection. State your name for the record. I'm sorry. Thomas Wheeler with the law firm of Bozeman, Kenny Nevins. Allie Bartlett, one of my partners is here, as is Carlin Yoder, who is chairman of the Trump campaign in the state of Indiana. What we filed with the commission members just now is a preliminary jurisdictional objection to the filing. There's two motions there. The first motion is based on Indiana. Sorry to interrupt, but have you provided copies of this? We have not yet. Can we give those to you? Absolutely. I'm sorry. I thought we had. And before you go on, Mr. Wheeler, are we following proper procedure here? Mr. Chairman, I'll defer to counsel, but the proceedings of the commission today are governed by the Administrative Orders and Procedures Act in Indiana Code 4-21.5. Does it permit such a filing at the time of commission? I believe it does. Yes, sir. Thank you. Sorry. And I'll just summarize it briefly. There's two motions there. The first motion is a preliminary jurisdictional motion based on IC3816A. As was noted, Mr. Keiser's challenge is based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. IC3616A, and this is noted in the motion you have in front of you, that statute specifically excludes sections like a Section 3 14th Amendment challenge. It limits candidate challenges to, and I quote, a candidate for the office of president or vice president of the United States must have the qualifications provided in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 4. Can you please give us the citation? Sure. And it's set out fully in the motion as well. IC3816A. It's four sections behind the base candidate challenge statute. Sorry, we're getting your documents distributed. No, no, I understand, and I apologize. No, you're fine. So right now we're talking about the first motion. The second motion is the federal argument, and it's the argument that we made in front of the Supreme Court on the fact that Section 3 doesn't apply to the president. And I'm sorry, you said 3866, but it looks like it's all 3816. 3816, did I misspeak? I apologize. 3816A. 
So the statute under which the, the challenge has been made is the general statute, okay? It is the, the, the statute that says, applies to all candidates, state or federal, that want to be on the ballot. The specific statute that deals with the president makes it clear that you cannot bring just any challenge under the Constitution. You may bring challenges under uh, Article 2, Section 1. Uh, that's it, which is the basic qualifications for the president, not under Section 314 or anywhere else. And if you look at the second paragraph, Part B, the General Assembly uh, in this statute considered Section 314 challenges and limited those to presidential electors. As you know, there's five constitutional officers in, in the U.S. Constitution. It's the president, the vice president, Senate, House, and then presidential electors. So they made it clear, the legislatures made it clear in this statute, which is the more specific statute. Uh, I know we're all, all, you guys are all attorneys here. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court has made it absolutely clear that a specific statute controls over a general statute. This is a specific statute that says that the only challenge to a president can be made in Indiana under uh, the qualifications under Article 2, Section 1, uh, Clause 4 of the Constitution. It limits Section 1, which is the basis for uh, the candidate's challenge. Therefore, uh, our position that we've taken the motion is that uh, the commission lacks the jurisdiction to even hear this, which is a preliminary thing that the commission has, as, as a setting as an administrative law judges, has to deal with before hearing the challenge. Mr. Wheeler, how do you reach that conclusion? I mean, it just states that you have to have the qualifications of one particular clause of the Constitution, but it does not state, it does not state that this is the only basis upon which you can be challenged. It's just simply stating Indiana says you have to meet these qualifications. Sure. Do we have to take I'm a sorry. motion and second it before we have any engagement here? Are we free to ask? Uh, we can ask questions. Yeah, you can ask questions. Okay. Yeah. Sure. No, sure it does. It's the statute, the general statute, or the layout of the statute, and, and all of our statutes, we have general provisions and then we have specific provisions. The general provision says, which applies to all the candidates, all right, which is, is the first part upon which he's brought this. And it says the Constitution, it says the Indiana Constitution, it says statute uh, and IEC rules. With respect to this statute, this is a specific statute passed to deal with the president and the vice president. And then under it is one to deal with presidential electors, which makes it clear that the Indiana General Assembly, when it enacted that, it tended to limit in that specific circumstance the challenge to a president only to Article 2, Section 1 challenges and does not contemplate Section 3 because Part B does add that for presidential electors. Well, that's presidential electors. We're not having presidential electors here. And in fact, the fact that they didn't say the only qualification you must meet is this to, I mean, for, for president or vice president also says something. Now, my question is, since we just got your brief, no, um, do you have any legislative history, any case law, anything that supports your interpretation? Sure, of if you look in there, uh, the, the statute was amended in 1993. Before that, both the presidential section, part A and part B, just had the qualification section. In 1993, the legislator looked at those two and they amended part B to add section three in there. They did not amend it to section A. Now, I, I, as I'm sure you know, India doesn't have a legislative history, but we can presume, and the Indiana Supreme Court has done that. That's why you read the statutes to, to harmonize with each other. We can presume when they 
amended the presidential election statute to add, add presidential electors section part B to add in 1993 section three of the 14th amendment. They chose not to make that same amendment in part A dealing with the president, which is basically a recognition of the arguments that have been made to the Supreme Court, which is that it doesn't apply to the president or the vice president. Section three. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but I, I just cannot agree with that interpretation because for an elector, what you're saying is that you cannot be an insurrectionist to help to serve to cast electoral votes for the president of the United States. It's not saying there that as a candidate for president of the United States, it didn't say that you can or can't be an insurrectionist. So, I mean, I would be much more comfortable with this. We tend to here at the commission to be inclusive and you know, to hear a challenge at, like this. And I, you know, I'm just, I am personally not comfortable with adding a brand new interpretation to this law that has not been interpreted by Indiana court. And true, while we don't have legislative history, what I should have said was, did this appear in, in our histories regarding the adoption of the Indiana constitutions or any amendments and such. So I apologize for my mislabeling, but um, I, you know, since we are now traversing a brand new area of law, um, I am not comfortable giving this provision such a narrow, narrow reading and would prefer just to proceed to hear the challenge. So I would move that we um, deny the motion and proceed to the challenge. Sorry. Yes. First motion. Is there a second? Second. Having a second. A motion and a second. Any questions, Whitney? Any discussion? This is, um, unless I'm mistaken, the first time I've dealt with such a, a, a motion on either side of it. So I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, but. Certainly applaud your attempts and your, your the legal gymnastics to get to this point. So, uh, but we have a, a motion to, um, how did you state that? To deny the deny the motion to dismiss. Motion to deny the motion and proceed with yeah. the challenge. And we have a second. Um, okay, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 The ayes have it. We'll proceed with the, yeah, with the challenge. And Mr. Wheeler, I also applaud your creativity. You're an excellent lawyer. We all know that. Well, I think if I, Mr. Wheeler, I think if I understood correctly, your second motion was was more for background and not the second to be provided motion is to a follow-on and it's probably as appropriately dealt with after because it, it is a it is the Section Three, uh, Article Fourteen, actual argument and it's 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 our Supreme Court argument for all intents and purposes. So this is so it's more appropriately addressed after. Uh, right. Clarify that. I'm sorry. Right now, motion has been made that the commission is not taking away Oh, because by filing this, it's a motion. Okay. So this constitutes a motion, um, and I guess we need to vote on it. Are you talking about the motion that's for the second? So he has a second filing. 
Okay. So that he Mr. made to the state election. But Mr. Commission. Wheeler, you were just saying that you think that this will be addressed when we get into this, the challenge itself. It, it, it's essentially a merits argument. So think of think of twelve. I made a twelve B one. Okay, and this is essentially a twelve B six motion. Okay. Is this a motion? Would you be willing to withdraw it for the purposes of this proceeding? We'll withdraw it. I want to keep it on based upon the, but we're willing to hold an abeyance until the challenger makes yeah. his argument. The way I understand it, Mr. Chairman, is what he's saying is that we'll go ahead, go through the challenge, and at the end, he can then, using the evidence and what has been presented and discussed, he can then make a motion before we decide. So he wants to provide that. So to clarify, this is not jurisdictional, using Brad's word. No. It, it is jurisdictional, yes. And, and if not, you would like, not, to, it goes to the merits. But, but, but it is it is also jurisdictional because the the point of the argument is that uh, under any law, you lack jurisdiction because Section Three, Article Fourteen, in my position, the General Assembly has made it clear that that does not apply. One, this argument says, look, under federal law, the federal law makes it very clear that Section Three, Article Fourteen, does not apply to the present, which is again jurisdictional because. If it doesn't apply to the president, there's been no violation of the Constitution, therefore you wouldn't have jurisdiction to hear it. Mr. Chairman, yeah, they wouldn't, when uh, Ms. Bartlett handed me the motion, she handed me both, I think, out of convenience, but I really only heard her say something about the first, so I do think that we could move forward with the challenge, and then they could use and, the second motion, even though we technically and, and, have and our possession. If we need to, couldn't we have a motion to table the second motion? And then we can. I think that would that work. Yeah. If we need to clarify things. Decide. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I thought that's what uh, the commissioner and I had yeah. been. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. If, yeah. if we're okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. So motion I'll to table. Yeah. Yes. yes. I move to table the second motion to dismiss. Okay. Second. Second. Uh, all those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Motion is tabled. Thank you for your help. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Back on track. Uh, where were we, Mr. Kester? I have a few documents. Uh, will you please say your name and spell it for the court record? My name is Benjamin Kester, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-K-E-S-T-E-R. Thank you. Um, and- Mr. Kester, has the other side been given copies of this document? Uh, no, one of those copies is for them, I'm sorry. Um, we can share. We can, we can share. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. All right, thank you for uh, agreeing to hear this challenge today. Um, so uh, I'll try to stick to the facts here. Um, he already referenced the uh, challenge under Indiana Code 3812 that the Election Commission shall deny a filing um, if you determine that the candidate has not complied with the applicable requirements for the candidate set forth in the Constitution. So. Um, Few facts here. Um, I believe that Mr. Trump has failed to meet the qualifications to serve under the Constitution of the United States, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who previously, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as any member as a member of any state legislature or executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but 
Congress may vote by a two thirds of each house remove such disability. Um, Congress has in fact done a vote. Um, so on January 13th, the House of Representatives voted on House Resolution 24, which you have in front of you, on the 117th Congress. Um, that in a bipartisan majority, uh, in a vote of 232 to 197, found that President Trump incited an insurrection against the government of the United States. Um, this went to the Senate February 13th, after Mr. Trump was out of office. Uh, and again, a majority, 57, found him guilty, 43 did not. I recognize that this failed to meet the bar for impeachment. Mr. Trump was out of office at this time. Um, so those are the facts. Um, I wanna go on and read something from the January 6th report that was referenced in the Government Accountability Report. Uh, you have statements uh, in here uh, showing the statements that Mr. Trump made um, to the crowd that was gathered, uh, but I want to speak about what that ins insurrection um, detailed. So over the course of about seven hours, more than 2,000 protesters entered the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, disrupting the peaceful transfer of power and threatening the safety of the Vice President and members of Congress. The attack resulted in assaults on at least 174 police officers, including 114 Capitol Police and 60 DC Metropolitan Police Department officers. These events led to at least seven deaths and caused about 2.7 billion in estimated costs. Um, during this insurrection, Mr. Trump gave aid by withholding federal law enforcement and the National Guard, which is detailed in the January 6th report. Uh, the full title of that is Final Report of the Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Attack on the United States Capitol. Uh, that's on pages six and seven that I've provided. Um, he also gave comfort to the insurrectionists uh, by public statement, uh, validating their uh, chance as they assaulted the Capitol. Um, he posted this on Twitter saying, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution giving states a chance to certify a correct set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth. That's also quoted in the papers I've given you. Uh, and uh, he, he has continued after the insurrection to advocate for those people who assaulted police officers and entered the Capitol illegally. Um, Famously, right after this, these events, he said, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from the great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace, remember this day forever. And more recently, on his true social account, has advocated to free all J6 political prisoners, is how he refers to them. Uh, so with that, I will take your questions or uh, move to the candidate. Um, just went five. It just went mm -hmm. five, okay, thank you. Uh, any yeah, right to question, correct? Yeah, Mr. Wheeler, do you have any questions? Okay, thank you. You're up. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the commission. Uh, my name is Ali Bartlett, A-L-I-B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T, -T, and I'm also with Bose McKinney and Evans. Um, while we feel that the merits of the challenge were not directly addressed by uh, the challenger, um, before we address the merits of our argument, um, we do have one additional procedural motion that we'd like to proceed with. Um, this motion, is a motion to disqualify. Um, and uh, we'd like to proceed with this ahead of our substantive argument. Um, under Indiana Code Section 4-21.5-3-9D, um, we have a right um, to disqualify a commissioner who's expressed personal bias, prejudice, um, or other prejudice toward um, anyone uh, as a member of these proceedings. Um, and so under the law, the members of the commission when hearing these challenges um, function as administrative law judges and therefore um, cannot specifically express prejudice, prejudice against any of the parties. Um, as you'll see, uh, we've provided an exhibit A, which we believe um, does illustrate prejudice by one of the members of the commission and therefore we would move to disqualify Commissioner Celestino Horseman prior to proceeding with the substantive argument. This is being exhibited. Yes, this is the exhibit A. And I'll give you a second to review the motion. Uh, we would like to know, you know, under the same statute and with all due respect, there was an opportunity for Commissioner Celestino Horseman to recuse herself at the outset um, because the recusal did not take place. Therefore, we're moving forward with this motion to disqualify as we feel there is a level of impartiality that's been publicized ahead of this hearing. And while we, um, you know, hoped for a recusal, we didn't have it. And so we'd like to proceed with the motion. Uh, Mr. Chair, may I respond to this motion? Thank you. Since it does involve me, they've attached one article for clarification for those in the audience who aren't familiar with it. I do a monthly column for the Indianapolis Business Journal. And in one of my columns, I titled, did an article that was titled, Candidates Should Be Judged by the Company They Keep and brought up the question about certain of our candidates running for state offices and their endorsement of Donald Trump. Now, we are political appointees to this commission, Ms. Bartlett, so you may not be aware of this, 
But what I'm happens aware. is that our names are put forward by the Democratic Party chairman. Sure. And their names, <clears throat> please let me finish. Don't respond while I'm talking. Um, and their names are put forward by the Republican Party chairman. The overriding thing that we have going on here, and we work well together for the most part. I'd say 99% of the time we work well together. But the overriding thing that we all have to do is we take an oath to protect and support the constitutions of Indiana and the United States and protecting the voters and voter integrity and all of that. So, you know, I'm not quite sure what your point is in actuality. Can I be looking at the law? I'm a lawyer, I do it all the time. And you're a lawyer and you know that we have many personal opinions regarding the facts of our cases but we go forward and we follow the law because that's what we're required to do. And that is the same situation here. So I would respectfully ask my fellow commissioners to deny this motion for me to recuse myself because I don't intend to. And secondly, I find it very peculiar that if they wait till this point in the process, after I have spoken up about not granting their motion dismiss and just raise this now, letting the other side go forward and just raising this now because it leads me to conclude that they just didn't like what I said or how I voted. So I, I would not encourage that kind of behavior either. Thank you. Uh, this is new water for me. Uh, yeah, um, this is the first time I've seen it come up as well. Um, so I'm, I'm reading here on the fly, but I, I do have some concerns for you, Mr. Chairman. As I'm looking at 421.536, it's, I'm gonna paraphrase here, but an individual as a person presiding in a proceeding under, and it's referencing AOPA 28 through 31 of this chapter, and knowingly or intentionally violates section 11, 12, or 13 of this chapter commits a class A misdemeanor. And let me tell you why I bring that up for you. Bear with me as I kind of flip around here too. Um, Four, Indiana Code 4-21.5312, administrative law judge, prohibited acts and disqualifications. There's a, this is where it talks about an administrative law judge who comments publicly, uh, except in a hearing scheduled or proceeding about pending or impending proceedings, which I haven't read the article. I'm just going off of what it doesn't have said a second ago. I, I just want to bring that up so that you're aware that it looks like if a judge moves forward who would be violating 12, you could have some issues under 36 for letting that go on. I, I don't and that, that see applies a mechanism to for me as the chair, as the chair, the as I'm looking at 36, an individual uh, presiding in a proceeding who knowingly and intentionally, and I wouldn't say that you violated 12, but if Depending on what the article says, I do have some concerns. Well, about I would, I guess, 12. I would point out just for clear. So this article is dated December eighth, twenty twenty three. So it was before any challenge. I guess my, yeah. my, I understand what you're saying. I think that this, I mean, all of us. Well, I guess I'm presuming that all of us engage in a certain level of political activity on behalf of our parties, or we would not be sitting in these chairs, mm -hmm. number one, right? I mean, that's that's just, that's, well, I mean, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm we're affiliated with, yeah. with our parties. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it is. But the other reason we're here is because we've demonstrated that despite our affiliations, we can rule on these matters. But anyway, to address your point, I just want to point out this article is dated September 28th, 2023. 
before this challenge was ever, well, I guess I don't know the date. I'm assuming that um, Mr. Kester didn't file it yet. When, when, February 13th, was 24 it? was when he filed the challenge. Okay. So in terms of this article, there was no challenge pending at the time. Um, and this is not commenting on the challenge. It's not commenting on the proceeding. Um, I just, pending so, I'm just going to commission. I apologize. I want to let you finish. Um, if you keep, I'm reading this as we're going here, but if you keep going an administrative law judge who engages in financial or business dealings, and I don't know if you're paid for that column or any of those details, but it reflects um, on the judge's administrative and impartialities. I would just encourage everybody to read section 12 before we go forward of Indiana code 4 212 Cause that's given, that's I think what everybody needs to review here with this challenge and then like I said, Mr. Chairman, I have some concerns under 36 for you. Um, I will clarify, I don't get paid any money as much as I might like to <laughs> for doing this, but I do get a one-year subscription to the IBJ. Okay. Is that in, in trade for you writing the columns? Yeah, they, they give that to me as, as my compensation so I can read my own publication. Co-counsel, co-chiever, uh, uh, just out of appropriateness, would you like to weigh in on your? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, again, we're, we're not administrative. We don't practice administrative law except we're at a commission meeting. So these are all relatively new. But first and foremost, looking at 4-11, 21.5, 3-36, and looking at how it is set out, it, it, it reads, an individual who won serving alone or with others and as an administrative law judge or as a person presiding in a proceeding under sections 28 through 31 of this chapter and two, knowingly or intentionally violates sections 11, 12, or 13 of this chapter commits a class A misdemeanor. So that's two um, subdivisions separated by an and clause, which under statutory construction, as I understand it means, you have to meet those two items. So while the second item, which my co-counsel has uh, referred to into sections 11, 12, and 13 may touch on these things, we are not, uh, I don't believe that our, this particular Ministry of Law hearing touches sections 28 through 31, um, only to say that because we explicitly um, excluded from our election code we put in parts of the Administrative Orders and Procedures Act. We, as a matter of practice, even before I started at the commission um, 10 years ago, or sorry, at the division 10 years ago, have explicitly removed those sections. I think those sections have to do with specific agencies, but unfortunately, since I don't have those sections in this book, I don't remember what they are. So I feel that for section 38, I don't think feel that we do need to be um, worried about that since I don't believe we're meeting that that subdivision one. We we don't have we are not dealing with anything that is covered under sections uh, what was it twenty eight through um, thirty one of this particular chapter. Um, nonetheless, as for the uh, for the other matters about um, disqualification, ex parte communications, all those things. Uh, uh, the code is plain. Uh, I recognize that this motion is something that is covered in uh, three or 4-21.5-3-9. It has been brought forward and it's up to the administrative law judges, all of you, to uh, determine its merits and vote as so, you see So what I, 
what you're saying is the motion filed to dismiss does follow those guidelines. Is that what you're saying? Motion filed to yes, it would be yes. You a motion has been brought forward that someone that um, that an administrative law judge, a member of this commission, is disqualified. Uh, your action, you you either you have to decide it, and either you you uphold the motion and, and disqualify and I do that um, the commission member or not. I don't think so. Chair, I think there no. Vote? I think that would be a vote. Okay. Um, and just a comment on what 28, 29, and thirty is. Those are final orders and authority to issue. Uh, for the ultimate authority, which in this matter, you all would be the ultimate authority here at the agency level. So I, I Matthew, just so you know, I do think 28 and that would apply. It's, it's all about issuing orders. I think we just don't have it in our code book because we don't issue a lot of final orders. I, I don't, you know. I, I'd I have to study a little bit more. Uh, yeah. I would just say nonetheless, I, I, I think the, the, the next step is, is clear is to handle this motion as you would handle any other ones like the um, uh, first motion to dismiss um, and that we um, um, go from there. Um, I'll just say this, I mean, there's any disagreement here, there is an ability to appeal these matters into Marion County Court. Uh, and, and that's all I have to say, just I, I have to look at the sections myself uh, when I can get into my laptop. Um, Mr. Chairman, I do. Uh, I, I have a question because I'm sure. looking at 421.5-3-12 um, and what, what they're arguing has to do with financial or business dealings. I guess my, I read that provision now and I'm wondering, so it doesn't define what financial or business dealings are. Um, I'm wondering if, for example, campaign contributions that would make fall into that. May, may I clarify, I mean, so Commissioner? Now, Our, we're just, okay. just, wait, Sorry. We're discussing up here just wait. Well, I, I mean, that's, that's a question. I, I don't know. So I'm asking the attorney, because this is, I mean, I'm thinking, well, because there's, I mean, there's, we, you know, we don't recuse ourselves because of but the fact that, you know, we've made campaign contributions. I mean, it's a, candidates we've in our campaign records are public. public i'm just mm -hmm. yeah i mean i just uh I, mr chairman i think yes. at this point I, I agree with council co-chiever that uh it would be proper for the four commissioners to take a, a vote on if they want to remind me want to handle this motion to disqualify commissioner salasino horseman <laughs> Remind me, there are certain things that require a majority. There are certain things that require unanimity. What, where does this fall? If this was to go two two, you would deadlock. You would need a majority of three to make a change. Okay. So it fails. So if it's mm -hmm. so it needs a majority to pass. Yeah. Otherwise, okay. Um, so moving back, that did not count against your, your no. five minutes. <laughs> yeah. um, we have a motion from you. Sure. Is there anything you'd like to add before we consider that motion? Yes, and just to be clear, the basis for the motion does not have anything to do with financial compensation or anything of that nature. And this motion is made with all due respect. Um, under the law, it brings about you know the question of a judge's personal bias or prejudice. And the details in the article that struck us were related to the comments on January 6th, the insurrection, et cetera. Again, with all due respect um and not related to the financial or business interest um and so you know the motion is made on the basis of the personal bias or prejudice that's why we brought about the motion 
obviously yield to the commission's discretion, just bringing it forth as part of the procedure. And just another clarification, if the, if the motion were upheld, what happens next? I believe you would go forward with, with the challenge. Yes, if that was the way, if it was upheld, yeah, you would move forward with the three members and still have the hearing. So we don't have to have four, four as a proceed, which always struck me as odd because doesn't the challenge require a unanimous vote? No, four? no. no you have to have three. Right. Okay. Um, yes, to uh, provide uh, context here, the sure. statutory requirement for action by this commission is three. It's not a majority. So if you were to uphold okay. um, and Ms. Celestino Arsman had to step out, you still need three votes on whatever motions you're taking. All right. Just one point of clarification. I apologize. I believe when I was sitting in that chair, wouldn't they be able to appoint a proxy if she recused? Yes. They would be able to appoint a proxy. So you would you would have four members. You would simply, and I assume you've got proxies in the back ready to go where people do. All right. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> But, but typically in, in situations like this where someone would recuse, we would, we would pick a proxy. So I assume that would keep keep with you with four people well, on, uh, on that. Uh, running the risk of looking too far down the road, why don't we just tackle this motion um, to disqualify member Karen Celestino Horseman. We'll, we'll vote on that and we'll kind of go from there if that's all the same. Uh, do we need a second? So, is there a motion to accept the respondent's motion to disqualify? So moved. I'm sorry. We need to close the we need to close the administrative presentation with a motion to deny. If you don't have a motion to accept. Okay. So is there a motion to deny the request to disqualify? So moved. So we have a motion. Is there a second? Second. We have a motion and a second. So that motion is to deny your petition to dismiss. Uh, to, not to disqualify. To disqualify, sorry. <laughs> motion upon motion. Uh, so we have a motion to deny the request. We have a second. All those in favor of that motion signify by saying aye. Aye. Those not in favor signify by saying no. 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 Uh, so the motion to deny does not pass. So where does that leave us? We would go back to it. So, okay. I'll start the clock. Are you ready, Mr. Chairman? I'm sorry, I didn't hear what, where did we he proceed? Said? Okay. I was, are you ready for me to start the clock? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the commission. And I appreciate your consideration of our procedural motions. Um, while we don't feel that Mr. Kester's presentation of the challenge uh, hits on the substantive uh, basis of his argument, uh, we will respond with five points that largely mirror the initial motion to dismiss and, and is centered around a jurisdictional argument at its core. Um, first and foremost, um, the petitioner's challenge is legally defective on its face. Um, presidential qualification disputes are non-justiciable political questions under the Constitution of the United States. Um, under the United States Constitution, political questions are, quote, beyond the court's jurisdiction and likewise beyond the jurisdiction of state election boards. Um, in other states, when we've heard similar challenges and um, otherwise, courts have observed that, quote, the vast weight of authority has held that the Constitution 
commits to Congress and the electors the responsibility of determining matters of presidential candidates' qualifications. Um, similar decisions involving pres uh, presidential candidate John McCain, Barack Obama, Ted Cruz, and Kamala Harris, quote, the Constitution assigns to Congress and not to the courts the responsibility of determining whether a person is qualified to serve as president. So whether a candidate may legitimately run for office is a political question that the court may not answer. Um, further, um, the constitutional authority of the elector electoral college in Congress is specifically highlighted as it comes to the qualifications for the office of president of the United States. The political question doctrine instructs the court to refrain from superseding the judgments of the nation's voters and those federal government entities the constitution designates as the proper forums to determine the eligibility of presidential candidates. That's a quote from a case out of the New York Supreme Court. Um, as these courts have continually observed, the constitution contains a host of provisions specifying how electors for president are appointed, how the electoral votes are cast and counted, what happens if the results is an unqualified presidential candidate and how Congress may respond if the voters choose someone who may be disqualified under section three of the 14th amendment. So the constitution specifically addresses what happens but specifically refrains from granting jurisdiction over presidential qualifications to the election commission here before you today or judicial proceedings in general. On top of that, presidential qualification disputes are not properly decided in state and local proceedings because of, quote, the potential, potentiality of embarrassment for multifarious pronouncements by various departments on one question. Basically, we, can't, uh, we do not have the jurisdiction to make this type of determination at the election commission level here today. Any questions? Um, sorry, oh, <laughs> I have a going. couple yeah, additional sorry. points here. Sorry. The petitioner is asking the commission to revisit a decision that's already expressly made by the United States Senate. The articles of impeachment that were brought against President Trump by the House of Representatives specifically and prominently invoked Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. President Trump's alleged, uh, alleged incitement of insurrection on January 6th um, were brought about before the Senate. And the House trial manager specifically asked the Senate to disqualify President Trump from future federal office holding. They did not, and they acquitted President Trump. Um, the petition, uh, the petitioner asked the commission to second guess and undo that decision that was made by the United States Senate already. This cannot be done without expressing lack of the respect due to coordinate branches of government. Um, presidential qualification disputes are political questions and they belong in Congress. Number two, section three of the 14th amendment uh, can easily be enforced only as prescribed by Congress. The petitioner before you today asked the commission to determine that someone, the president, is disqualified from holding office under section three of the 14th amendment by virtue of having engaged in insurrection against the United States. But just months after the 14th amendment itself was enacted, the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States at that time himself held that this determination can only be made in proceedings prescribed by Congress. Um, the intention of, and I quote, the intention of the people of the United States in adopting the 14th amendment was to create a disability to be made operative by the legislation of Congress in the ordinary course. For 150 years after section three's enactment, that's exactly how it was enforced, only as prescribed by Congress. 
Now, after January 6th, Is there a motion to grant any further time? How much do you have left? I can summarize the last few points quickly if you'd like. I would move to allow that. Second. Thank Any discussion? You. Hearing none, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Sure. Thank you. So uh, generally, Congress has not said anything to require authorize the bo this board before us today to investigate whether anyone is disqualified under Section 3. Um, finally, Section 3 does not apply to the president, um, which is largely reflective of the argument that my colleague previously set forth. Um, but reading, this uh, reading the phrases in harmony with the rest of the cons uh, Constitution makes it quite clear that, um, that this does not apply to the president. Um, and again, my colleague previously made that argument. So um, again, does not bar anyone from the presidency, section three, section, uh, Section three does not specifically bar anyone from the presidency. Um, again, it's uh, reflective of the arguments previously made by my colleague, and it actually does not bar running for office in general. By its plain language, a disqualification under section three of the 14th amendment prohibits an individual only from holding office, quote unquote, not from appearing on a ballot or being elected. So for all of the foregoing reasons, we hold that not only does the commission before us today not have jurisdiction over the matter, um, but the matter itself is not specifically addressed under Section 3 of uh, the 14th Amendment. Thank you. Two-minute cross-examination. And please keep it only to the questions, your questions raised to the material that yeah. she provided. Yes. They provided, sorry. Yeah, um, I don't have much here, um, but did I understand right that your first claim is that only presidents um, can be insurrectionists, but any other office uh, insurrectionists are barred from serving? No, I, I said that section three of the 14th Amendment does not apply to the office. Okay. Um, see, and then that. I think that might be the only question that I had for you. Do I get two more minutes at the end? Uh, I don't right, believe you, so. I believe it was two minutes for cross examination. To go back to my. Yeah, I need to look at the procedures. procedures. <laughs> I don't think there is afforded any closing argument. No, I think you have your two minutes for cross examination on each side, and that will rest your case. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, can, unless you have to address the commission real quick. Unfortunately, your time to do that was prior to this. Thank Unless you. you have any further questions for the challenge. No, I, I, would, I would move that since we extended the time for the other side and he got up and thought he had to do cross-examination rather than do his response to this, yeah. I would move that we give him how much time you need? Two minutes? One minute. One minute. Take two. It's easier. Okay. I would move that we give him two minutes to be able to allow him to make his statement. Okay. There's a motion. Second. There's a second. Any questions? All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 All those in favor? 
I, I said I. Oh, you said I. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Um, my Sorry kids. My kids asked me last night uh, how I got selected to do this, um, and the I thought about it while I was sitting here. Today. Um, the framers of our constitution put it in the hands of the people to bring challenges. Indiana's constitution has graciously allowed this mechanism for any voter to bring these challenges. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, and I believe today you have the opportunity to um, affirm what Congress affirmed and that many Hoosiers observed on live television on January 6, 2021. Um, that Mr. Trump incited an insurrection against the United States government is constitutionally ineligible to serve. So thank you for your time. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question along those lines. I, I sure. think you just said it in a way that resonated with me, but it should be in the hands of the voters. So why would you want to deny the voters a chance to vote on the presidency with Donald J. Trump on the ballot? Um, well, we're here today to hear challenges to the ballot. There's a lot of voters that may feel disenfranchised, if that's the right word to use it, um, that their chosen politician isn't going to be on the ballot. Some people aren't going to qualify for various reasons. So this is the rule. Yeah, I was just echoing your statement in yeah. the form of a question. Okay. So where are we have? If you're ready to uh, make a motion to vote on the matter, or sure. you can have more discussion. Sure. Ms. Bartlett, I quick question. You were saying that the 14th Amendment, that it was about holding office and not being on the ballot. So is the argument there that this isn't right? Sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify. Yes. That, the, that section three of Article 14 does not, uh, or sorry, the 14th Amendment does not specifically apply to off, being on the ballot as a candidate, or rather holding office, and technically not the opposite president. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? So, is there any motions that? Want to be offered. So we have a challenge to Trump being on the ballot. Anyone want to offer a motion? I would move to deny the challenge. We have a motion to deny. Is there a second? I'll second it. Any discussion? Um, Mr. Chairman. Yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, contrary to what's been presented today regarding my position, I take this very seriously. I have practiced election law for years. I've practiced constitutional law. And I take my responsibilities in that regard very, very seriously. And contrary to what was represented previously, I didn't label Donald Trump an insurrectionist in my article. I questioned his actions on the day of January 6th, but I did not attach that label. Now, I find myself today having to sit here and actually decide the issue. And I'm gonna tell you, as a lawyer looking at it from with my head, as an American looking at it with my heart, this is a terrible decision to have to make. Um, when I accepted this appointment, I did, as I stated earlier, 
I did take an oath to protect and uphold the Indiana and US constitutions. And I take that very, very seriously. The Constitution says that someone who has committed, who is an insurrectionist cannot serve as president. But no courts, and, and Ms. Bartlett capably outlined the law of which I have read so much on all of this now. Um, but as she outlined, those are the positions that the Trump campaign has taken, but there has been no uniform decision made by our courts of all the various points that she raised. And that is what is ultimately resting with the United States Supreme Court. And as we are sitting here today, we do not have that direction. So again, I am left to make my own decision. So here are my conclusions. Immediately after the November 2020 election, Donald Trump began making claims of fraud. He began to deliberately and intentionally undermine the people's faith in our electoral process. As we know, he was never able to secure proof of such fraud. And he knew at the time when he was making those misrepresentations that they were untrue. We've heard this from his own staff attorneys and, and his staff members. Now, Donald Trump was also well aware of the impact this information was having upon his supporters. He watched daily as the anger grew and ultimately issued a call to action. His call was come to Washington DC on January 6th, where like-minded people are going to gather and we're going to let our leaders know that we didn't like this election result. Once they gathered at the Capitol, Donald J. Trump told them, let's march on down there and let Congress know how you feel. I will be there with you. Those, he stood up there and said that. We all watched it on TV. He dangled himself as the proverbial carrot from the stick to get those folks down there to the Capitol. Now, for several hours after, and he told them he would be there, but as we know, he did not show up. And for several hours afterwards, no one heard anything from Donald Trump. We know he was sitting in the White House, watching the violence, watching what was happening, and we took no action despite pleas from his own daughter. To, he took no action to try and stop this. He didn't ask them to stop. He didn't do anything in that regard. Instead, what he was hoping, what he intended when he started all of this was to somehow stop the transfer of power. And that constitutes insurrection as far as I am concerned. Now, while Donald Trump didn't storm the steps of the Capitol, he is the one who aimed and pulled the trigger on the violence that occurred on January 6th. He is the one who delayed and stopped the transition of power and the only reason he spoke out later was because he saw that it was not going to succeed. So now I am left to decide what to do. My vote today will likely not make a difference and my life will probably be much easier if I just kept my mouth shut. But those who know me know that I am not one who keeps my mouth shut when I think something needs to be said. So in support of my const our US constitution, in support of America, and as an American who loves her country and the law, 
I vote to grant the challenge. I'm going to vote to grant the challenge. So there's the motion is to deny the challenge. Um, and I appreciate your opinion and your comments offered. Uh, for the record, I would want to ensure that those are not the comments of this body, but those of, of member Karen Celestino Horseman alone. Um, and whether I agree or disagree with much or all of it is probably not relevant, but as I stated before, I think it's up to the people of Indiana to decide how Indiana elects its next president. Um, and I find nothing sufficient in what's been offered today or at any other time to deny Donald Trump access to the ballot. But we have a motion and a second. I uh, like the comments. Please. Well. I'll be more brief, but <laughs> sorry. Go right ahead. <laughs> um, I would just say, I, um, I just, I wanted to comment because while I, I in no way approve of the actions of uh, Donald Trump um, on January 6th, um, the thing that I find odd about our situation here is and reading very carefully Indiana's laws regarding what it takes to be a candidate for president on the ballot, because I, I, before I was looking at the constitutional provision that's referenced in 3-8-1-6 with respect to presidents, all it has to do is electors. So it, it seems really odd to me that Indiana law says, well, as long as you can get enough electors, you can be on the ballot in the general election, which seems to be missing a whole lot of steps. Um, so I guess, but I'm, no, I'm not gonna go to the general assembly and ask them to make changes. But anyway, um, I wish I thought that'd be a reasonable or a productive thing to do. But anyway, I, so looking at that, it's just, it's just strange to me that Indiana law doesn't um, incorporate even the very basic provisions about what it should take to be a president. Um, and I also, I, I know that this issue is currently pending before the United States Supreme Court. And um, I just, I, much as I wish, I felt like we could do something about it here. I'm, I don't, um, I think there are issues out there that need to be resolved by entities other than us. Um, Gotta follow what's, what the law says here in Indiana. Um, do it need I, our duty here is to defend Indiana law, and I don't think that we've had any judicial rulings or anything else that have showed us that Indiana law has been violated here. So I would call for the vote, Mr. Chairman. So we have a motion and a second to deny the challenge. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Those opposed? Nay. Nay. We have one nay. Uh, majority carries. The motion to deny disqualification of Donald Trump prevails. Um, and I would direct the election division to include the name of Mr. Donald J. Trump on the certified list of primary candidates sent to all the county election boards. Matters closed. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chair, yes. just so we exhaust administrative remedies in case somebody does want to go to court, we need to have a motion made the other way so we can show we exhausted. Oh, um, actually, technically, I think. Yeah, Karen did make that motion, didn't she? Okay. At the end of oh, her okay. answer. And I, I, I apologize. Sorry. That was my miss. Well, technically, at the end of your, of your conveyance of thoughts there, you, you did move. I said, I, I correct myself, said I would vote to grant the challenge. Okay. Well, okay. so what, what I hear that, that you saying for AOPA purposes, we need to have a motion to uphold 
I oh, oh, mm, uh, you didn't. Okay. May I? Okay. Sure. Yeah. Usually, so usually during candidate challenge hearings, the the usual one, and I'm recalling back to 2016 with the challenge to um, um, Todd Young when he was running for U.S. Senate. Yeah. The two motions that have been most common have been motion to uphold the challenge, yeah. motion to dismiss the challenge. But since your since the motion that was made was the motion to deny the challenge, that is final action by this commission. I would advise that there's no other motion to be made. This matter is now concluded, Agreed. at least at this level. Would you agree? I with agree that? with Matthew. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to make sure we were fully exhausted. Appreciate that. Okay. All right. Decision stands. Moving on. Thank you. Uh, Uh, next case I have is Whitley v. Biden challenge, cause number 2024-03. In the matter of the challenge to Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., candidate for the Democratic Party, nomination for President of the United States. The election division has provided copies of the candidate filing challenge form with attachments and a copy of the notice given in this matter in your binders. Um, anything from the co-directors before we proceed? All right. Um, just to give an. Oh, Valerie. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, this is against the Democratic one. Yeah. So I'll. Yep. So, um, members of the commission, uh, what are in your binders are as follows. It is a copy of the challenge filed by the challenger, Gabriel M. Whitley, including his statement in paragraph number six of the matter of his challenge. Uh, also before you is an appearance form uh, filed by. Um, uh, David Zimba here representing um, Joseph Biden uh, in this matter, um, as well as a copy of the CAN 7 request for presidential primary ballot placement in 2024, filed by um, candidate Biden, um, as well as a copy of the hearing and um, uh, information that we did send um, the, uh, the hearing out uh, timely to both parties. Thank you. Valerie, anything I don't have anything okay. to add. Thank you. Uh, I recognize Mr. Whitley, the challenger, for your presentation. Going once, Mr. Whitley. Going twice, no, Mr. Whitley. Okay. Um, I guess we, if you want to proceed. Uh, the challenger isn't here. Don't the rules provide that if the challenger doesn't we can, show? but someone would want to make a I motion would, to that effect. Based okay. on the challenger's failure to appear, I would move that we dismiss the challenge or deny the challenge or whatever. Dismiss. Denied. Would it be dismiss or deny? Dismiss. Dismiss. I'm hearing dismiss, dismiss from this side. Dismiss. So we have a motion to dismiss the challenge based on a lack of presence from the challenger. Is there a second? Second. Any questions, comments? Concerns? Take the matter to a vote. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 The ayes have it. The matter is closed. The challenge is dismissed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I am going to call for about a five minute recess. I need to use a pencil. Um, uh, is there Mm -hmm. Just say whenever we're going to come back. That's the key under AOPA. So if you want a five-minute recess, we'll be back at 1120. 1120. 
at the same location. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.